Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey folks, it's Mark from the Partially Examined Life. Did you know that all of our episodes since episode 109 have had an after show recorded after them? It's where listeners like you get to discuss the episode that just happened. And for the past bunch of times, the host for them has been Danny Lobel, the host of the Modern Day Philosophers podcast, who is a very funny guy. The full audio from the after shows, slightly edited, is posted for Partially Examined Life Citizens. But this is such an awesome thing that we're trying to push it out to the wider population here. So here's a preview it's 15 minutes near the beginning of a, I think, two-hour or so discussion featuring Danny, Wes Alwyn, Daniel Cole, David Buchanan, Eric Weissengruber, Frank Markopoulos, and Tara Lee Bell. Now, if you're not a citizen, you can still actually see this whole thing because these all get recorded on YouTube while we're doing it. You can even watch them live if you pay attention to PartiallyExaminedLife.com or watch them after the fact. So you can find the full video for this, link from PartiallyExaminedLife.com. I want to encourage folks to get involved with this. It's a fun way to hash through the topics that we raise in the podcast yourself. Typically, at this point, they're on the Sunday, either right after or a week later, after the last part of a new episode comes out. So the one for episode 118, as you might know, is happening on July 12th, next Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. You do have to be a citizen to attend, but again, you can watch it live. You can even post comments on the YouTube thing while it's going. Now, for the citizens that might listen to this, but don't sync their phones, don't want to go to our website, download the audio, have to plug your phone into your computer, get it up on your phone. You don't have to do that anymore. We now have a citizen feed so that if you use an application like Downcast for Apple or Android devices, so if you're in Downcast, you choose to add a podcast, add it manually rather than searching for our name, which is how you'd find most of the regular episodes, and then enter partiallyexaminedlife.com slash feed slash citizen. And then you enter your citizen username and password, and bam, this after show and all the recent ad-free episodes and those episodes that you've been wanting to listen to, but they're not on the public iTunes anymore. And a lot of our other citizen content will just be right there, streamable to your phone. So that's a very exciting thing for us, regardless of whether you want to use that or not. Hope you enjoy this small chunk of the after show from episode 117. <laughs> Lucy Lawless would have said, <laughs> she would have said, it's okay, you did a good job there. You know, it was a tough moment for a minute there, but... Uh, all's worked out. All's well that ends well. The Queen That's an Australian be... accent, not a New Zealand accent. Uh, it's, yeah, tough line there. It's all just different measures of the English accent, isn't it? Hey, Tara Lay's here. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. We're discussing Antigone, or Antignon, if you pronounce it incorrectly, like I originally <laughs> did. Antigon. I thought Paul Provenza played the dad really well. Yeah. <laughs> Like, he has that Italian kind of, like, way of talking. 
You know, like, hey, hey, listen. And I felt like it was, like, a really good character for him, you know? Yeah. He kind of reminded me of, like, one of the Sopranos or something. You could play it like a mob boss. That yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Hey, look, I'm going to whack him, you know? And then he's like, you know, I've had some second thoughts. You know, <laughs> there was a prophecy. I uh, I screwed up. Let's go dig her out of the ditch. <laughs> On a serious note, I think, you know, one of the things that's featured in this play is kind of the difference between vendetta justice, you know, doing what's right by your family or your clan as opposed to the law. It took real work to get over that. That still goes on, like in the mafia, because they can't operate under the regular law. They have to make their own, and so they go for the old world stuff. That's thousands of years old, right? Dishonor my family, I kill you, that kind of thing. Still goes yeah, although Creon, right, Creon thinks he's transcending that, I think. Mm-hmm. He's representative of true justice, not vendetta justice. So that he's essentially willing to... Um, these are people within his family. He's the uncle of most of the people involved. So he's willing to you know, kill his niece. and So Creon thinks he's transcending familial loyalty. And so it's, it's almost an overreaction to the, the other extreme, which is the incestuous not just familial loyalty, but familial love that goes beyond affection to sex. To bring it up to current events, I think it's a lot to do with pride. <laughs> I felt like he had too much pride. He wouldn't listen, and the way, was it Haman, his son? Haman, The way he presented it to him, to his father, I thought was very tactful and you know, he tried to do it in a way that wouldn't destroy his father's ego. And he was saying, I'm not even doing this to stand up for my woman. I'm doing it to stand up for you. Because at first you think he's going to agree with his father because he's like, what kind of son would go against his father? And the father's like, yes, you know, someone who raises a son who goes against his father is doing a detriment to himself. And and you're like, okay, well, okay. I guess he's going to take his dad's side. But he was, I thought he was just... Gently playing his ego right there, just saying, but, you know, people around town are talking, and they're saying the same, so great, and I thought that was a very telling moment in the play of just how he understood that his father had this huge ego, and he wanted to try to get through to him without destroying his pride. It also (laughs) sets up the final action, too, where Creon gets his due in the end, because the conflict between... His son and him leads not only to the death of his son, but also his wife. So the sort of the fate of Oedipus's family, you know, they die out with along with the dynasty. So does his. I don't want to say it was contrived because the son's case was, you know, I could really relate to that. He was like one of the most sensible people in peace. But it also, it, it almost seemed really convenient for the final conclusion for Creon to lose everything in the end. Actually, can somebody remind me, because I was confused as I was listening to the discussion, what is the relationship between Creon and his family and the Oedipus story? So I know there's Creon is the brother of Jocasta, oh. who is Oedipus's mother and wife. Wife. Okay. So he's both brother-in-law to Oedipus and uncle to Oedipus. There is uncertainty about his position. Because if you remember, Oedipus comes in and he marries Jocasta, and so he is the tyrant. He has a position as ruler in the city, and then he has children. 
And so the question is, well, what's the succession going to be? It's up in the air because he is the husband of a queen. Okay, so, you know, I guess his children would come next. But, you know, what pull does Creon have? Even in the mythology, who's going to take power next? It's a moment of crisis. There's no sure, easy path of succession. Even in the mythology, not just in Sophocles or the other dramatists. Yeah, I wondered if it was a statement on some kind of quote-unquote sexual morality that, like, all this bad stuff surrounds, so to speak, the sin of Oedipus, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Oedipus and his mother curse everybody around them. Like, everyone's going to die who is in their path. I wonder if it was a statement on that at all. I think Paul or Lucy at the end brought up that it might have been a political satirization of what was going on with the leader at the time. Was that ever figured out, Wes? Did anyone ever look into who that leader was? Say it again. I think it was Lucy at the end of the episode who asked if it was actually like Creon was based on the leader of that time. No, it's just mythology. Yeah, uh, I didn't want to cut. That m might be a possibility. But if you want to talk about sort of layers of interpretation, the audience who is sitting watching that play are members of a republic, the Athenian Republic, you know, with a popular assembly, direct democracy for citizen males. So they are watching this story of a kingship and before that with Oedipus, a tyranny. So you have people who live in, again, where there are, there are briberies, there's cabals behind the scenes running little games, Pericles and his mistress running things behind the show. You have that very concrete activity of a small city's politics. And then these ideas of these mythic figures and the idea of a tyrant or a king. So, you know, you get Creon talking about people doing these dirty deals for cash behind the scene, which is of that world of a democratic polity, but he's also, you know, a king and associated with tyrants. So there's lots of layers to explore, is, is all I'm trying to say there. And he loves to remind everybody that he's a king. Seems throughout the whole time. <laughs> but I'm a king. <laughs> well, this is what kings do. It's good to be the king. <laughs> I was thinking that even if it doesn't make reference to a specific historical figure, he's kind of typical Creon. Yes. You know, he makes a fine speech in protection of the state and how you can't allow the traitors to, you know, be honored and all that stuff. I was reminded of contemporary politicians who you know, scare everybody that our way of life is under some existential threat and so they're going to do this tyrannical thing to protect us all. It is mythic in the sense that it could be about anybody of any era. It's just a almost like a human nature thing that just transcends form of government. And we didn't really get into the background with Aristotle, but that's what Aristotle says about poetry. It says, history is about what did happen. Poetry is about the kinds of things that happen, which is why it is more philosophic than history. So that's what Aristotle says in the Poetics. So it does have this applicability to multiple situations rather than, you know, designating specific causes and effect loci and things like that. That's what I was saying. Thank you. That's much yeah. pithier. Well, it's Aristotle. He's a, he's a pretty smart biologist. <laughs> so, David, you're saying what Creon did is 
tyrannical, and I made the argument during the podcast that he's actually acting on principle, which is a question. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. So, I mean, I think it's either he's a person who thinks he's upholding justice, so in that case his pride and his tyrannical behavior are sort of unfortunate byproducts of his certainty about what is just or unjust, or you could just see him as someone who's just ruthlessly after power or drunk with power or something like that. So I think those are two different readings. Guys, what, do, what do people think about that? You guys talked about that a bit in the first part of the after show. When I was listening to that, I was thinking 100% it has to be... I don't think he thought it was right what he was doing. If he thought it was right, he couldn't have been swayed because you guys brought up the point that it was a very quick like switch when he decides to go back and try and free her from the... Uh, what was it, a cave or... The complex that he... The tomb, yeah. The tomb, right. So there was things like, oh, well, his prophecies are normally correct, but it seemed like he knew all along that he was wrong, and it didn't take too much of a catalyst for him to be like, okay, it's like you did something wrong, you know it's wrong, it's weighing on your conscience, and you're just waiting for any kind of proof to confirm that it's wrong. Like, he needed something, it seemed like, to justify, because he had such a strong ego... He needed something else to, like, say, okay, fine, not because I know it's wrong, but because he says it's wrong, and he's a great prophet, and you know, he's blind and everything. And he was just basically so stubborn and headstrong and drunk with power, like Wes said, that how many times does he mention he's a king? Like, it's unnecessary. We understand. <laughs> he has to tell me, yeah, look, I'm a king. I'm taking um, I'm unless he's anxious about no one getting it, or someone calling him on it. Like, there's the repetition because he's anxious. It's on his mind that he's not getting respected, that there's some people who don't think he should be king. That constant repetition is to reassure himself or to, you know, pound the message home to others. Yeah, I actually didn't think that he was just drunk on power, to begin with, at least. I felt like, at the beginning, he really believed that what he was saying was right, or he was trying to head towards what was right. When I first started listening to the discussion, I was like, oh yeah, so this is some kind of a conflict between the moral values of civilization and abstraction and law and literacy, and then I think, Wes, you even used the term communitarian, like a more almost like tribal kind of ethic. On further reflection, I don't think that's the case. I think that both Antigone and Creon are actually representing pretty abstract kinds of morality, and it's really, really hard to work out what to actually do in the practical world when you're working with abstract concepts of morality. So I actually think that Creon is really like, but guys, there's this order to the universe, and in this order of the universe, the king has to be able to say certain things, like he has to be able to make judgment calls and say, we're honoring this person, we're not honoring this person. Sometimes it, it drives me crazy because it sounds stupid when I hear people say this, but I think there's a genuine question under there when people do things that break the law. This actually might be a sort of interesting. The black woman, the activist who climbed up to the top of the pole and took the Confederate flag down, she broke the law, technically. And a lot of people look at that and say, if we're going to say that that's okay, then next we're going to have people running around raping and pillaging. And that might be sort of melodramatic, but I think that what Creon is trying to take a stand for is 
we said when we formed civilizations, when we formed cities, that this was how we were going to live. We were going to live by the letter of the law. It's written down. It's conceptual. We have to stick to it. So I don't think that he's just operating on power. I do think there's an ego trip going on there, like I a very I saw problematic a one. Thing to, you know, what you just described. And it was actually pretty effective because Creon's first giving the speech about you know protecting the integrity of the state, and especially in that context, right? Because they're surrounded by wild animals and barbarians, and civilization just exists behind stone walls at this period in history. It really is a pretty fragile and precious thing. He's making a real case, and I found it kind of convincing. And mm -hmm. he himself was convinced by it, but later it's revealed, I think, in the play, and then. He sees it himself that it was really this was kind of a rationalization mm -hmm. of his own insecurity. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. his rule was threatened by this traitor who came into the city to mm -hmm. try to take over again. And he is not just, say, a politician appealing to abstract notions of rule of law. There has been a crisis mm -hmm. resolved the night before. Mm -hmm. This city was under assault by its mm -hmm. rivals who were going to destroy it. You know, the long traditions of honoring the dead and religious ritual. There has been a crisis, and he is the sovereign who's going to establish, reestablish some kind of order in this state of emergency. And it falls to him to do that. So it's not as if we're witnessing a schemer or have his, you know, Machiavellian plan come to fruition. This guy's in a panic. And so he makes a lot of calls, but he then goes, oh, my God, I just made that call. I can't believe I made that stupid call. But he can't appear to be weak because he's the guy, he's the sovereign, who's there to instill some kind of order. So <laughs> when you say, I'm the decider. I'm the decider. <laughs> I'm the decider. Are we going to watch you play sovereign to your daughter now? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. That was very Creon like the way. Rebellious <laughs> children. Rebellious <laughs> children. Uh.